1: And we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call Shift Your Mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Matthew Dix is a best-selling author of fiction and non-fiction books. So his fiction books are memoirs of an imaginary friend, Something Missing, Unexpectedly Milo, The Perfect Comeback of Caroline Jacobs, 21 Truths About Love, and The Other Mother. And he also has nonfiction books, which is how I came to really find out about him through his work around storytelling. So his book Storyworthy, which is about engaging, teaching, and persuading to change your life through the power of storytelling. And Someday is Today, 22 Simple Actionable Ways to Propel Your Creative Life. So at his core Matthew is a storyteller and he's going to tell great stories in today's conversation and he uses storytelling to really create and leverage philosophical beliefs and wisdom and ideas to help us live a better life. He's also a teacher. Um, He's won awards as a teacher. He has won awards as a storyteller. He is uh, the author of a rock opera called The Clowns and the musicals Caught in the Middle, Sticks and Stones, and Summertime. He's also a wedding DJ. His content has been featured and published in Reader's Digest, uh, The Huffington Post, Parents Magazine, and more places. He is someone who is... Multifaceted, as you're going to find out in today's conversation. But once again, he is a storyteller and a storytelling champion. He's won a record 56 times from the Moth Story Slam Championship. We're going to talk about competing in this conversation. We'll talk about parenting and teaching. He's a teacher. He teaches fifth grade, and it is interesting to get his perspective on his mindset when he's teaching, when he's doing TED Talks, when he's writing, uh, as he's podcasting in today's conversation. You can tell that Matthew, I think, shows up very similarly in all of those spaces because he believes in storytelling as a thing and a tool and a skill that we can use in our daily lives. He's also the co-founder and artistic director of Speak Up, which is a Hartford-based storytelling organization that produces shows throughout New England Uh, Matthew's also a Yankee fan so we'll talk about sports in today's conversation Uh, and once again I think you're just gonna love Matthew's approach to life his desire to continue to make conversations and interactions more intentional more thoughtful and with storytelling in mind so here is Matthew Dix Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Your work's awesome. Uh, TED Talks are great. Uh, I read your last book. It's spectacular. And in the end, we'll we'll tell people more about that book uh, as well. But where I thought we'd start is with a mentor of mine. So Neil Stroll, uh, big Boston Red Sox fan, big New England Patriots fan, pretty much anything Boston, Neil was a fan of. And Neil recently passed away. Um, And when I thought about Neil when he passed, I thought about this saying that he would say over and over again, which is, do you have the story or does the story have you?
0: That's good. That's pretty good. Yeah.
1: I'm curious your thoughts on, on that phrase.
0: Right. Do you have the story or does the story have you? I mean, I guess, you know, if I had to choose between the two, I want to have the story, which is to say you're sort of, making the choice to define your life and relate it to the world and really relate it to yourself in a way that is best suited for you, that presents the best opportunity to learn and grow, or you sort of, you're being dragged through by events and circumstances and people and, you know, strife and all of that. So I've often thought that storytelling for me is a way of making sense of my life and i always tell people the most important audience for any story you ever tell is yourself you're going to be the first one to hear it and you're probably going to be the one that gets impacted the most by it and so i have found throughout my life that when i tell stories about my life my life gets better both in the moment and in reflection you know I, i take the time to look back and if i see something as ugly in the past i take the time to find the bright spots in that ugliness, which I think we often ignore. We often just say, well, that was a terrible experience. And well, not always if we actually examine it and pull up the covers and see what's underneath. So, yeah, I love that. I, I think that when we can, when we can control and tell our story in a way that is best for us, I think we are all better for it.
1: What's allowed you to dive into some of the traumas of your past or or the hardships in, in your past and look underneath the covers and and sort of better understand that story? What's, what's allowed you to do that?
0: You know, I think it's curiosity more than anything else. I'm just so deeply curious about why I am who I am. You know, I, I was playing golf with my buddy, Steve, a couple of years ago. It's hundred degrees out, literally 100 degrees. And I had forgot my Gatorade in the car. And so we're on like the sixth hole and it's this hill I have to climb to get to the seventh. And I'm dying, you know, because of the heat and Steve turns and he says I have an extra Gatorade do you want it and I said no which was crazy and I recognized that no is being crazy and when we got back to our cars at the end Steve drove away I sat in my car because I needed to know why I said no and you know I think that's what storytellers do we tend to say why do we do the things that we do because I think oftentimes we move through life and do things for reasons that are real, but often unexamined. And so I sat in my car and in five minutes I put it all together. When I was a kid, I didn't have enough food to eat. Very often I was hungry. And as a kid, what happens is you discover it's more important to keep your hunger to yourself than to let people know about it because shame is worse than hunger. And so as a kid, what I learned to do is when people offered me food, I always said no because I never wanted to acknowledge that I was hungry and I could never reciprocate on any offer of food because I was never someone with extra food lying around. And then it occurred to me, now I'm a 42-year-old man, but I'm still a 10-year-old boy because I have never accepted the offer of food from anyone in my entire life. I ingrained this belief system into me so long that in the 100-degree heat, I'm rejecting a Gatorade from a friend when I should have absolutely said yes. And that sudden understanding of who I was changed the way I interacted with the world forever and made me understand who I am in a deeper way. And it's just that level of curiosity that I think most people don't have. I think they're they're moving forward and they're looking ahead and they're sort of discounting everything that's happened in the past, but everything that's happened in the past is essentially who we are now. And so curiosity, I think, is the best thing I have going for me.
1: When Neil would tell me, do you have the story or does the story have you? I would think about things like you just talked about. Do we have food or does food have me? Do I have alcohol or does alcohol have me? Do I have gambling? Do I gamble or does gambling have me? Do I have exercise or does exercise have me? Do I have golf or does golf have me? Do I have jealousy or does jealousy have me? You can put that framework into so many different things. But I want to go back to curiosity. Uh, You also teach fifth graders and- Uh, We were talking before we started recording about our own children. And one of the gifts that I've been given on this earth is to be around two children who are both highly curious. And they're at ages where their curiosity has not been beaten out of them yet, uh, as adults often do to children. Um, Working with fifth graders, how do you help spark their curiosity rather than smother it?
0: I try to bring in every possible element of life to my classroom as I can. So this week, for example, the kids walk in every morning and there's music playing and it's a different musician every week. This week, it's Elvis Presley. So they walked in today, they heard Elvis and they knew a few of the songs. They didn't know some of them. Eventually things settled down and we had a meeting and the music stopped. And the first thing I did was I talked about Elvis and I talked about his childhood, how he was poor growing up and really shy. And when they put a guitar in his hand, he hated it and how in his first singing contest, he came in fifth place. And I said all that to the kids to make them understand that if you're bad at something right now, or you're afraid to do something right now, or you don't feel like you have the resources to do something right now, that doesn't mean you can't become the greatest musician in the country for a period of time. Like what you have now does not define your future. So I bring in Elvis and they get interested in the music. And I bring in all of those stories. And then when we have this moment later on in the day, we call it win time, what I need. It's essentially a time when I'm going to grab kids who are struggling. But if you're not struggling, you sort of get to do a little bit of your own stuff. And so one of my students started reading about Elvis and she came up to me at the end and she said, I just read some stuff about Elvis that you didn't talk about today. And I said, well, I'm going to talk about it this week, but that's great. So she became curious about it. And I do that in a hundred different ways throughout the day, constantly bringing in bringing in new elements. Actually, here's my favorite one. I was teaching, we did uh, Macbeth. We just finished Macbeth, Shakespeare. And Macbeth is a man who is plagued by uh, the sort of the seed of um, ambition. You know, witches come along and say, you can be king someday. And he ends up killing the king and becoming the king. And I said, isn't this a lot like the Stanford marshmallow experiment? And I told them about the Stanford marshmallow experiment and how that worked. And then I talked about Dolly Parton's Jolene because we were listening to Dolly Parton last week. And Jolene is a song about a woman saying, please don't steal my man because I know you can steal my man because you're Jolene and I'm just me. And we talked about the righteousness of should Jolene not steal the man because she can have anybody leave this guy alone? Or does she have a right to any man in the world that she wants? Like, is is that her God-given right? All of those things get tied into a lesson. So we ended up talking about Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, Dolly Parton's Jolene, and Shakespeare's Macbeth. I just try to constantly do that for kids. And hopefully it just grabs something that they might be interested in. I'm
1: hearing that and I'm thinking about creativity and even the what I need. So there's kids that need things. And then you're giving space to kids that may not need things to go be creative. And we just had our parent-teacher conference with for my son and he's am- he's really good with math and statistics and logic and figuring things out. And one of the things that came out of that conference was also trying to encourage fiction and creativity and dreaming, and it never occurred to me it actually occurred to my wife she's way more attuned to this stuff than I am but never occurred to me that how can we give them both right how can we give them the logic that they'll need the math the science the the sturdiness of research while also living in a world of possibility of a fiction world and uh, dreaming Um, and so you've written both fiction and nonfiction works I'm curious how your brain works when it comes to creativity and dreaming and creating, and then also sharing, uh, maybe more nonfiction storytelling as well.
0: So when I'm writing fiction, I'm essentially writing a "what if." It's just an idea that says, "What if imaginary friends were real, and the only people who would see them is the person who's imagining them, but they're genuinely real in sort of a, you know, in an existence sense." And that what if becomes a curious question for me that I explore through fiction. So every novel has always begun with a what if or a combination of what ifs. It's often more than one that come together. And that creates a story that I have no idea where it's going. You know, When I write, I can only tell you a couple sentences ahead of what's going to happen. I'm often surprised at the end of my novels. I have wept writing the last chapters of novels because it hits me in the same way it would hit a reader. When I write, Nonfiction, where I'm telling a story about myself, I'm essentially answering a question. Uh, you know, when I write story worthy, it's how do you tell a good story? That's the question I seek to answer. When I write some days today, I'm answering the question I get asked most often, which is how do you do all the things that you do in the time that you have, right? Both of those books just seek to answer a simple question in three to 400 words or three to 400 pages. So it's a long answer, but essentially it's seeking to answer a very specific question. So one is sort of undefined. And I wonder what's going to happen. And the other one is, oh, you have a question. I have an answer. Let me tell you what the answer is. Even my nonfiction storytelling, when I tell a story about something that happened in my life, like that little story I told you about Steve, it's answering a question. The question is why didn't Matt take the Gatorade? I'm going to tell you a story about why Matt doesn't take Gatorade and what he learned from that. So those are the differences for me. It's it's open-ended versus there's an answer and I'm going to tell you what the answer is.
1: Do you feel more alive writing one of those?
0: no not really when i'm writing fiction it's a little scarier because i don't know what the end is and i don't know if there is an end there's always been an end but i always think someday maybe this is the one that i don't have a satisfying conclusion to so it's a little scarier but it's a little more surprising when i'm writing nonfiction, i am more easily able to see my audience like i know who wants to tell better stories i know who wants to hear the story of my life, I know who wants to learn to be able to do more with their lives. And so for that, I I sort of feel more helpful when I'm writing nonfiction, even when I'm telling stories about my life. I, I tell stories to be entertaining with the knowledge that perhaps in describing how my life has gone, someone might take something from it and help their life too. That's not the goal. And if that doesn't happen, it doesn't really bother me. I seek to be entertaining first and everything else a second. But I, but I do acknowledge that often happens. So writing nonfiction, I feel like I'm contributing to the world, whereas writing fiction, I feel like I'm sort of inventing a new thing that will exist in the world, but I don't know how people will feel about it.
1: Hmm. I want to go back to the classroom because as a parent, it's something that's just relevant. I'll be in my daughter's parent-teacher conference tomorrow uh, and I'm not a teacher. And so I don't have the lens that you do. Uh, You've been teaching for a while now. I'm curious if you think about the creativity and the what ifs of fiction versus, and I'm just putting them as binary and obviously they can overlap. There's wonderful fiction that teaches a lesson and there's nonfiction that can explore what if. But if we sort of put those on in in sort of binaries, what do you think students need? Uh, Do they need more? Do we need to ratchet up the what ifs and sort of the fiction world? Do we need to lower the sort of logical nonfiction world, um, given the state of our educational system, you can, you know, wave a magic wand, like how would you approach our education system as it pertains to that?
0: I guess I would say to bring them together is the best way to go about that. So, you know, when I get kids in fifth grade, a lot of times they have been taught that there is a way to do something and there is, there's a way to do something, but it's not the only way. So just today, kids had to do 12 minus six. 12 minus six is six. And I said, the question I ask all the time is, how'd you know that? You know, and sometimes they say, I just know 12 minus six is six. Today, one of the kids said to me, well, I know six plus six is 12, so 12 minus six must be six. And I said, wow, look at that. You turned addition into subtraction and subtraction into addition, right? Creative, an interesting way to do it. I had another girl today, we were adding and subtracting decimals and she goes, well, before I start this problem, I know it's gonna be somewhere around 42. And I was like, wow. That's great because a lot of times in decimals, if you don't line up the decimal, your answer is way off. You know, you're going to, you could be hundreds off. She knows that her answer has to land somewhere around 42 in order to be correct. So she's looking at a problem and saying, before I even tackle it, I'm going to say to myself, what makes the most sense here? I think that's creative. I think that they're taking creative approaches to math and not sort of just following formulas and you know, walking down the path. If we look at what Einstein did, we can't say it wasn't creative. There's, he applied a lot of sort of tools and skills and mathematics to it, but he saw the world in a new way. So I think if we can get kids to see math in that way and history in that way, so that when we get to history, you know, one of the things I love to do is to talk to kids about unsung heroes. So my favorite is Samuel Whitmore. During the Battle of Lexington and Concord, he's a 78 year old guy who's tending his field when the British are coming back from Lexington and Concord and running back to Boston essentially. And he's a, he's a, you know, he's a colonist and he wants to fight the British. So he grabs his rifle, he's behind a wall and he opens fire, 78 years old, a veteran of previous wars. He opens fire on the British. He kills two British soldiers. Then they spot him. They run after him. He fires dueling pistols at them, And then he gets bayoneted about 20 times. And when his friends find him, he's trying to load his rifle for one more shot. And they leave him for dead. He ends up living. He ends up living until the age of like 95. He sees the birth of his nation that he helped to fight. And when I tell kids that story about the Revolutionary War, that is a way to instantly get kids hooked. And then I say, go find someone else that I don't know about. From the revolutionary war. Like I already know these people. Let's go find someone else. And so that's the opportunity to be creative again, to like explore the explore the revolution in the way that you so choose, you know, whether it's going to be through a battle or whether it's going to be through someone who invented something or a politician. So I invite all of those opportunities.
1: I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this and thinking, gosh, I don't know if they call you Mr. Dix or Matthew. What, what do they call you in the classroom? They call
0: me Mr. Dix? I would rather have them call me Matt, but in deference to my colleagues who, for some reason, feel that a Mr. and a Mrs. and a Miss confers some kind of authority, which it doesn't. And if, I, if you're a woman, the last thing you should be asking is for kids to be calling you Mrs. or Ms. Because if you're a woman, that denotes your marital status, which makes no sense. So I get to walk through the world as Mr. Dix. Nobody knows if I'm married or not, and nobody apparently cares. But if you're a woman, and you're an, a school teacher, suddenly you are defined by marital status. If I was a woman, I'd be upset about that. I'd be saying, no, we're getting rid of the Ms. and the Mrs. and the miss. All that's the nonsense because my age and my marital status are irrelevant to everything. So, so that's a long way of saying they call me Mr. Dix.
1: It's interesting. My, my daughter's teacher, who I'm going to see tomorrow goes by teacher. Uh, so it's mm. teacher and then their name, um, yeah. which works well. Um, it's better.
0: I, I like it better. I just think Matt would be fine. I, I get my respect from my students, not from my title.
1: How's respect How's respect earned?
0: It's earned, I think, through the acknowledgement that you love the child. I think that once a student knows that I genuinely love them, then I'm all in and I get everything I need from them. Even the ones that are incredibly difficult and sometimes impossible, they are less impossible for a person who they know genuinely loves them. And so I seek to ensure that kids know how much I care about them as quickly as possible.
1: Your your childhood wasn't always love it didn't always involve love. Where did you learn love and the power of love? So much so that you could actually give that out to a classroom full of children.
0: Huh. No one's ever asked me that question before. I, I don't know, I guess. I think sometimes the best examples in the world are the ones that are sort of negative. You know, you watch someone do something poorly and you go, well, I'm not going to do it that way. So I think that helps a little bit. And and I'll tell you, the teachers that I had, some of them were some of the best people in the world. I'm still connected to a lot of my elementary, middle and high school teachers and principals. So those people demonstrated love for me when I was a kid. And that helped a lot. School tended to be the place where I felt the safest, which is probably why I am a teacher today. So I think I learned it through the examples of people, both positively and negatively. You know, I think the the father I'm, I am today is because of the father I did not have as a child. So I think you can learn a lot from people screwing up in front of you.
1: Yeah, I hear that. I have a lot of clients who will tell me they basically go left when their parent would have gone right. And yeah. that's sort of their North Star. And I love how you go a little deeper than that and say, in addition, I did have models that I just found outside of my family unit um to show me the way and i think we all kind of have m- like mentors and i heard this on this podcast uh a woman her name's nicole said um the best mentors share their imperfections and yeah like yeah. <clears throat> so someone can be a mentor even if they don't choose to take that role on uh and show us their imperfections Uh, I had someone else on the podcast recently that brought this up and I want to bring it to you, which is they're the army lacrosse coach. Uh, So the men's head lacrosse coach at army. And we talked about getting thank yous from former uh, players. So I coached like an under nine soccer team. And I said, gosh, it means a whole heck of a lot when I get a thank you from a parent. Um, Now I'm volunteering. Uh, He's getting paid to do that. You're getting paid to be a teacher, but I'm, I'm curious for you, How valuable is it for you when someone says thank you, um, or they come back, you know, 15 years later and remember a story that you taught them, or they remember, you know, the the story that you just shared about the revolution? Uh, What do thank yous mean to you when you get them?
0: They mean a great deal, you know, and I will tell you that they mean a great deal more to every teacher except me. I often feel too, Uh, you know, when a kid comes back and tells me that I was important to their life, or I hear from a a future teacher who says they're still talking about you, you know, that is tremendous. I know that from most teachers, it means even more than that. My wife often points out to me that as a teacher, I get a lot of personal gratification, but I'm not a teacher who seeks sort of the approval of his principal or his superintendent. I, I want them to appreciate me, but I don't sort of go out of my way and i'm often hypercritical of administration in a really aggressive way that most teachers would not be and my wife points out it's because you get gratification from novels and from standing on stages and from working with business clients all the time so she points out you get a lot of your you know a lot of your good feelings in other places where for most teachers that's what they do they go into a classroom they work like hell and when they don't get recognized it's really devastating for them and it's not great for me but, I, but she's right. I can then go and stand on a stage in front of 500 people and be deeply appreciated for a story that I told. So if I don't get it in the classroom from a parent, you know, or I don't hear from a student or my principal is sort of annoyed with me, it tends not to matter as much to me. But I can tell everyone it means the world to teachers. And and when people ask me, what should I give my teacher, you know, on Christmas or at the end of the year, what should I give as a gift? I say, you write a letter to the teacher telling them what what they've meant to your child and then you send that same letter to the principal and the superintendent and the teacher and that alone you don't don't spend a penny instead just take the time to write a beautiful letter and send it on to the people who matter to that teacher that's the best gift you can ever give
1: you just captured what me and and coach couldn't figure out which is we all want appreciation but we don't necessarily seek it out like that for me speaks to it. Like I'm not coaching the soccer team because like I'm seeking out thank yous from my friends or from these kids' parents, but man, oh man, I want the appreciation. Like it, it like, this is me volunteering my time to run around with a bunch of eight-year-old boys, which if you've ever spent time with eight-year-old boys, it's not an easy task. Uh, I'm sure 10 and 11-year-old boys are, are difficult as well. Uh, And so I, I've never really thought about it that way. And I'm, and then if I go the other way with this, I'm sure your students want appreciation, even if they're not seeking it out. And like I'm I'm thinking even for leaders and people that are managers, like someone might say, Oh, I don't care about the awards, but they might still want it even if they're not volunteering or seeking it out. Can we just pull on that thread a little bit to try to understand like? human beings and their desire to maybe be appreciated, even if they're not saying that they need it or want it or have a desire for it.
0: Yeah, you know, I was working with the vice president of a very large technology company that you probably interact with every day. And we were prepping her for a talk she was giving to 20,000 people at the Javits Center. And she delivered her talk to me and I was to give her feedback. And the first six things I said to her were all positive. And I give positive feedback, which as a teacher, I do relentlessly is in order to first make her feel good, because that's important, especially in public speaking, but to also highlight the things she's doing well. So she continues to do those things well, because oftentimes we do things well that we're not aware of. And if no one makes us aware of it, sometimes those good habits can fall away. So I gave her a whole bunch of positive feedback, and then I followed it up with some critical feedback. And at the end, she said, you're the first person I've ever worked with in the corporate world who said good things to me at all. And you said a bunch of good things before you said the bad things, you know? And I said, that's crazy. But in talking to other people in the corporate world, everyone's like, well, of course, Matt, no one has anything good to say. They listen to what you do or they look at what you do. They tell you what's wrong and they say, go fix it. And that's sort of a disastrous way to approach anyone because everyone wants some validation. Everyone wants some appreciation. Everyone wants to know, that some of the stuff I did was good. And so often in the world, what we're always looking for is what was not good, what didn't go well, how can I fix this? And so as leaders, as human beings, we have to be relentless in our attempt to provide positive feedback. A six to one ratio is the ratio that you should be seeking to achieve at all times. So every time you're gonna say something critical to someone, there should be six positive things that are accompanied it. And you should not think of that as fluff positive feedback actually changes and enhances behavior consistently and constantly. And so you should not be thinking, I'm going to make them feel good before I stab them in the heart with a negative thing. You should be thinking, I'm going to take the things they're doing well. I'm going to bolster those things. I'm going to ensure they continue. I might even enhance them further. You know, you're doing this really well. Keep doing it well throughout the process. All of those things can be really helpful because that's what people want. That's what people need.
1: I'm thinking about what you were talking about earlier and you were saying You know, you go on stages, you write books. Now you're talking about coaching someone who themselves are going on a stage with 20,000 people. And the obvious question for me, at least, is like, why, why do you continue to teach? Like, well, why do you continue to show up um, in the classroom, my wife works in the school system. There's not a lot of autonomy other than the summertime and, and maybe like a winter break, you know, you show up Monday through Friday and you're there from this time to that time for someone that likes to play golf. Okay. Maybe you can get out at, at three o'clock or three 30 and go play nine. But, um, why not just embrace these opportunities, which you are embracing, but just make that a full-time gig. What, what keeps having you show back up to school every, every September?
0: Yeah, you're asking the question that my money people ask me all the time. Like, they say, every time you go to school, you lose money. What are you thinking? Yeah. Why are you doing that? And the reason is I love kids. I, I just really like spending time with those kids. They're they're the best human beings I know. Even the awful ones are the best human beings I know. I've also sort of structured my life in such a way that it, it's it's easier for me than a lot of people. I live five minutes from my classroom. So I can drive to my school and be there in five minutes. I've been teaching for 25 years, for 22 of those years in the same classroom, and for the last 16 years at the same grade level. So at some point, things get a little easier for you. And then you reach that point in your career where no one bothers you as long as the parents are happy and the kids are happy and your grades are even good. The scores your kids are producing are fine, even if they're not exceptional. And I've reached that point in my career where I can tell the superintendent or tell a tell an administrator that they're doing a terrible job in a really aggressive way, and no one really bothers me. I I think they kind of of ignore me at this point. They're like, that's just Matt spouting off. But ethically, I think when we see something wrong, especially in a system that's designed to help children, if we see something wrong, we have to say that it's wrong. And I tend to say it a little more aggressively than most people, because I'm in a position that I can. And I recognize that a third-year teacher or an eight-year teacher, or a person who only has teaching and nothing else. You know, if they came and fired me tomorrow, economically, I would actually be better off, right? So I'm in a position where I can say things that other teachers can't say. And so I do that purposefully as the voice of people who can't speak in that way. But you're right, it's really challenging. For me, golf, by the way, I play almost every day. I play from 6.45 a.m. until 7.50 a.m. There's a nine-hole course 11 minutes from my school. It's an executive course. So it's a short course. And if I walk it really fast, I can play it in about an hour, five hour 10, if I keep it on the fairway. And so I played this morning, I played nine holes of golf. And then I went to school. And I'll tell you, I'm the happiest human being at my school every day. Because I watched the sun come up over red and yellow leaves. And I hit a ball and I made a couple pars. And I walk into school feeling great. So you can get things in if you want to. But you're right, the school schedule is a it's a difficult thing to work around at times for me.
1: Are you playing by yourself?
0: Yeah, well, on, on these mornings, because no one wants to come out at 645, it's actually a little dark now. <laughs> I'm waiting for the daylight savings time to kick in. So at The first hole, it's kind of dark, but yeah, I play by myself on the weekdays at these early morning hours, and then I play on the weekends with buddies, and in the summer, I can play as much as I want, and I'll play with lots of friends then, but it's a really lovely thing to play. Put on a pair of headphones, listen to Bruce Springsteen and play nine holes of golf. You know, it's just, it's a great way to start your day.
1: Do you enjoy playing by yourself more or the same as playing with buddies? Is it, it's a different experience.
0: It is. I never played by myself because golf is so social to me. I love it because I get to spend time with people. I, it was, I've been playing for 15 years now and I had never played alone until a couple of years ago when there was a day when nobody wanted to play. And I was like, I just, I'm going to go walk the course by myself. And this course that I happen to have, I'm very lucky. This course doesn't have tee times you walk on. It's a nine hole executive course, you know, four par fours and five par threes. And it's laid out beautifully. I see deer and coyote and Hawks every day. And so I don't mind playing alone, uh, especially in the morning because nobody can slow me down because I got to get to school at a certain time. So Sometimes I pick people up, you know, not now because it's gotten too dark, but back in September, people would join me. You know, I played with this amazing guy, Gus, one day, and he gave me like all the wisdom of the world in nine holes. I wrote it down. I wrote down every single thing he told me. It was amazing. So sometimes I'll pick up a person along the way, but if they don't play quick enough, I'll just say, listen, I got to get to work. I'm going to, I'm going to play through and you have a great day. So yeah, it works both ways. It turns out I'm more than willing to play alone.
1: You mentioned 25 years working in schools. What's changed? What's changed in those 25 years uh, from your perspective?
0: <laughs> a lot. Uh, you know, one of the funniest thing that's changed is that when I started teaching, I used to have to try to convince children to take risks. You know, before the pandemic, we used to take kids camping uh, every year, three days of it's not really camping because it was in a cabin. You know, I was a, I, I'm a scout, so that's not camping. But we would take kids out to the woods for three days, um, three nights and four days. And for lots of my students, because I work with um, a lot of inner city kids, it was their only time to sort of go out and stand next to a lake and play in the woods and things like that. And, you know, 25 years ago, when I first started doing it, I would have to convince um, I would have to convince these um, I'd have to convince these kids that it's going to be okay, that we're going to do it, you know. And over the years, what's happened is I've had to convince parents it's going to be okay. There was a time 25 years ago where kids would be where parents would say, yeah, take my kid, have a great time. And now it's like, well, let's sit down and talk about what you're going to do with the kid. I'm like, it's going to be fine. I've been doing it for 20 years. It's going to be great. And they are a lot more concerned these days about a lot of things that they need not be concerned about, which is troubling. You know, any other thing? Why do you think that is?
1: Sorry, why do you think that is? Why do you think it's changed?
0: Well, I've, I've got some research on it. I'm actually working with a guy who's going to be giving a talk in Denmark. He's been doing research for years on this. Part of the problem is a perception that the world is more dangerous than it really is. You know, what happened is in the 90s to 2000s, uh, a lot of things, including cable news, suddenly made everyone's problem, everyone's problem. So like if there was a, a school shooting in Arkansas, it was a school shooting in every school because it was aired all over the news. When I was growing up in Blackstone, Massachusetts, there was something called the Blackstone Sniper. It was two people firing a gun into windows and trying to kill people. And for a portion of my childhood, I used to have to crawl underneath the picture window when I was a kid at night, so we didn't get shot. It was so bad, the National Guard was on the streets at night. But no one has ever heard of the Blackstone Sniper because it was in 1986, before there was cable news. So the only people who knew about it were the people in Blackstone and Millville and North Smithfield. So the Blackstone Sniper didn't infect the minds of the world or the country, it just bothered us. And then, you know, through the advent of mass media and social media, a bad thing happens somewhere in the world and suddenly it feels like it's in your backyard. And suddenly you worry about your kid because you worried that that's going to happen to you. Where statistically, it's so unlikely. You should be playing the lottery rather than being worried about your child being kidnapped. You know, the, you have a greater chance of winning the lottery than losing your child to some random kidnapping. But parents don't feel that.
1: Yeah, Julie Lithgott-Hames, How to Raise a Child, uh, her book, she she really does a nice job unpacking that, especially kidnappings, like your, the playground, uh, what we've done to playgrounds, and, and how we think about that. When you said sniper, I'm from Maryland, so um, the sniper that took place in 2002 yeah. Um I was away at college and I have a very distinct memory of watching the news and like, should I go home and go defend my family? Like I'm going to do something if a sniper is coming for us, but um, like that, Feeling was very vivid for me. And I remember being in my dorm room, like freaking out and being scared for my family um, and the terror that they caused. And as we're recording this, the war in Israel is breaking out. And I have family in Israel. And there's somewhat of a similar feeling. It's like, should I go over there and help and and support them? And to your point, we didn't have the imagery and the unfortunate vividness of evil, um, or horrors, um, maybe 25 years ago, as we do today, where and then it's constant and on loop, and you can't run away from it, even if you even if you want to.
0: Um, Yeah, statistics collapse when fear arrives. So you can tell people statistically that your child is exceptionally safe today, safer today than 25 years ago, even with all of the things that we know about problems with the world. But if you turn on the news and you see that some child was taken or killed or harmed in any way, it just becomes a fear of yours, regardless of the uh, statistics.
1: Yeah, and safety is such a big deal. And I'm curious, is there anything you do in the classroom to create a psychologically safe environment, whether it's handling mistakes or... um you know, people always talk about be vulnerable, and and you certainly hit on vulnerability and the importance of it in your book. But I always say vulnerability without psychological safety is very dangerous. Uh, vulnerability without safety, in, in general, is is dangerous. So, what do you do in the classroom to try to create a safe environment so that your students can take risks? Or when you're going away and taking them, you know, camping, like what do you do to also create the safety that allows them to explore uh, and go from there?
0: Well, I start. Every school year uh, on the first day, I tell the kids the story of the time I was at a classmate's pool party when I was 12 and I had a new bathing suit that was too big and I hadn't tied the drawstring and I went off the diving board and I left my bathing suit behind and I ended up in a swimming pool naked while my friends were staring at me and how horrible that was. And I tell kids that on the first day of school because I want them to understand that I know what it's like to be embarrassed and ashamed because that will happen to you because you're 10 and 11, you're beginning puberty, and that's for sure going to be a feeling you have. I actually had a father a couple of years ago call me on the first day of school and say, why are you telling my daughter about you being naked in a pool? And I said, well, because about two thirds of the girls in my class this year are going to have their first periods. And some of them are going to happen here at school. And weird as it sounds, many of them come to me and say, Mr. Dix, I just had my first period. And I am one of three men in a building filled with women. And there's women everywhere. So that little girl could have gone to any lady she wanted and said, I just had my first period, but they come and they tell me. And it's because I'm vulnerable enough to say, I understand what shame, embarrassment, awkwardness, I know what those things feel like. And that's why they come to me. And then I always have to say, thank you for letting me know. I don't use any of the products that you require. I'm going to go send you to Mrs. So-and-so, and she will be able to help you better than I can. But I think that's really important to be To be honest and forthright with kids and let them know that I understand what it is like to feel foolish and stupid and inadequate and all of those things. And then the other thing I do is every single day, the third slide I show my kids is a message that says mistakes are valuable. And we celebrate mistakes. Today, teaching math, when we got the problem correct, the first thing I say is, who wants to share a mistake they made? And kids raise their hands now and they share the mistake that they made because that's really important. And sometimes we just talk only about mistakes. I say, I don't care about your right answers today. I just want to hear the, all of the things you did wrong with that math problem today. Don't tell me the things you did right. So that belief that when we learn, we make mistakes and that mistakes do not define us in any way. When we make an error in front of our classmates, we should not feel bad about it because we're all making errors. Because if Mr. Dix can end up in a swimming pool without a bathing suit on around his friends when he was about our age, you know, saying that two times three is five instead of six is nothing. And we're just going to learn from it. So constantly modeling uh, the, the life I lead, which is filled with errors and problems and showing them how you can overcome it. And then assuring them that I want to see their mistakes. I love their mistakes. We'll learn from them.
1: As you were telling that story, I think my child, how often my childhood had dreams where I was naked somewhere and, that just brought that up for me, and and just the fear that you have when you're a child that you're just naked somewhere, and yeah. maybe Freud can figure out what that's about. Um, <laughs> but, but I'm also thinking about you. In front of a classroom and i know i watched a bunch of your ted talks they're spectacular and every single one you're wearing a baseball hat and a black shirt and you address this in the book and say hey yeah i want to wear something very simple and and that people aren't focused on what i'm wearing and they're focused on the storytelling um but one of the no two of them you had a yankees hat on and then another one you had like a a random hat on and uh so my first question, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stack questions. So we'll get to the Yankees hat in a little bit. Before we do that, I want to go to the classroom. Do you think of your classroom as something similar to a TED Talk? Or is it very different knowing that these people are going to come and see you day in and day out, whereas the audience is going to come in and then they're going to leave and, and go their separate ways? Is it a similar feeling or is it different when you're, quote unquote, performing in front of a classroom compared to performing in front of a qu- corporate stage or a Ted talk or whenever else you're speaking, is it different or similar for you?
0: It's very similar. You know, the mistake anyone makes and almost everyone makes it when it comes to public speaking, whether it's in front of 10 year olds or, you know, audiences is the assumption that anyone wants to hear anything you have to say. And so when I help people tell stories or deliver speeches or keynotes or things like that, we have to embrace the fact that nobody cares about us. Nobody wants to hear anything we have to say. And everyone's looking to disengage as aggressively and quickly as possible. And when you absorb that belief and you truly own it it forces you to be entertaining it forces you to create wonder and suspense and surprise and all that you do i bring that same assumption to school every day no kid wants to be here essentially i'm teaching to me the kid who didn't want to be in school when i was in school as a kid i know i have some kids who love school and they would want to come every day but i'm not interested in those kids like i'm glad you're here but i'm still going to entertain you even though you want to be here So teachers that assume that kids want to be in school and assume that if they're in their seats, they're listening, or assume that their job is not to entertain, but just to educate, all of those are terrible mistakes. School should be fun. The number one thing should be that schools are fun. When kids want to come to school because they enjoy coming to school, 95% of your problems disappear, both in terms of behavior and learning. And so get a kid to love coming to school and that's going to be wonderful. And so fun can be, I'm gonna create situations where we laugh. It's gonna be, I tell stories. Sometimes fun is just, here's a math paper. It has 20 problems on it. They look at the 20 problems. I allow them to absorb the 20 problems. And then I go, you only got to do six and you get to pick which six. Suddenly it's the greatest assignment of all time, right? All I wanted them to do was six. I could have given them a sheet of six problems and said, do six. Instead I give them 20 and say, choose six. And they're so happy. So choice is a way to entertain kids. Choice is simply like today you can work with whoever you want. Or today you can work with anyone you want on this side of the room. Even that is okay, right? Even that makes them happy. There's a million ways to entertain kids and make school fun for them. Teachers make a mistake by assuming that fun should be something down the road that maybe comes into play if there's time. Every single day, every lesson I teach, there has to be a reason why kids are excited to do it. And that is the only reason I have been successful as a teacher. My pedagogy, my lesson planning, my assessment, all of those, I have colleagues who crush me and are so much better. The only thing I do well is I make kids love coming to school and it solves all my problems.
1: All right. But come on, Matt. I have an hour with these kids at soccer practice and they're picking up sticks and they're throwing it. And I'm like, my son's actually pretty well behaved. I'm like, thank God I got him. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so, like, how do you have the patience to continue to bring the joy year in, year out, twenty-five years into this? When I'm sure there are days where it's frustrating, and it's difficult, and it's hard, and you're tired, and uh, you just want them to to follow the rules or listen or whatever it is. Like, what do you do to manage yourself to make sure you're bringing the same enthusiasm that you did maybe day one, year one in school?
0: play golf every morning. It's a great start. (laughs) I believe in these things. I believe in taking care of yourself when it's cold and dark and I can't play golf anymore. I'll probably be on the bike in the morning before I go to school because exercise is great for the brain and body and people discount it and say, okay, but what else? And I'm like, not okay. What else? That is a thing that will make you feel good when you get to school every day. You know, I have 1 million tricks to use with kids, 1 million. And so it's as simple as Today, I told the kids to put their snacks away, and one boy did not. He forgot to put his lunchbox away. He's a real bright kid, really funny. So when he left the room, I took his lunchbox. I walked out the door that leads out to the outdoors in my classroom, and I put his lunchbox across the road on the grass field about 100 yards away from the classroom, and then I walked back to the classroom, closed the door. He came back, and he goes, where's my lunchbox? And I said, I don't know, because it's not in your locker where it belongs, so we have no idea where it went to. And that was four minutes of joy that every kid loved. We played hot and cold, you know, cold, cold, hot, hot. He's up against the door and I'm going hot, hot, hot. He goes, what am I supposed to do? And then he sees it across the field. He turns around, he goes, you're ridiculous, (laughs) right? And that's great, right? And so four minutes, everyone's happy. And then we're back to math. You know, and, and I have a million ways to do that. And I love doing it. So I never get tired. And every teacher who has a really hard day, I tell them the same thing. I say, listen, every day ends at 320. And there's only 180 of them. So get to 320, close the door on the day, go do something in your life that is good for you and come back tomorrow. And if tomorrow is bad, it also ends at 320. And there's only 180 of them. Most people have to work 250 days a year. We work 180 and we get our summers off. And if you don't like this kid, you only got them 180 times. And then there's a new one next year. It's not that bad. I know I'm, I'm speaking from a place of 25 years of teaching and I've got systems and I know other people have challenges that are not mine. My wife teaches kindergarten right now. Kindergarten is insane in September and October. But those are the ways that I get up every day and say, this is not that bad. I'm a lucky guy.
1: Competing, uh, I I've heard you sort of refer to yourself as like, I love to win. Like, I'm a jerk. I love to win. I do. And I come from the sports world. Like competing is kind of a baseline if you enter the arena. Like, if you're not gonna compete, we don't want you on the team. And mm-hmm. if you don't have a competitive spirit in sports, you're already screwed. Um, storytelling. We talked about sort of the TED Talk or the corporate speaking, uh, opportunities compared to the classroom. But I would imagine if you're in a storytelling competition where there's judgment, that that might be a little bit different. Um, is your mindset the same when you're competing to win um, on stage as it is if you're giving a keynote as it is in a classroom? Um, and I'll, I'll stop there. And then maybe we can riff on the word competition and, and why you, what you think about it.
0: Sure. It's not that different, really. You know, my wife knows what a jerk I am. So if I go do a TED conference, there's no one judging, but I'm judging. And so I want to deliver the best talk, you know, and if they don't put me in a good spot, you know, there's certain spots that you want to be in. And so if they put me in the wrong spot where I have to go second, which is a terrible spot to go, I want to be so good that like everyone else can't figure out why I didn't close the show. So the only difference I think in storytelling and public speaking is, I don't want to uh, demolish my competition. In golf, if I beat my buddy by ninety shots, I'm thrilled. You know, in basketball, if my buddy doesn't score a basket and I score a thousand, I think that's fantastic, right? I, I don't mind pummeling my competition if that's possible in most in most venues. But in storytelling, I actually am always rooting for a good show or at a TED conference, I'm rooting for a good conference. Or if I'm delivering a keynote, and there are other people that are going to be speaking that day, I kind of want everyone to do well. I just want to do better than everyone else. So it's the one change in public speaking, because I know it's how hard it is for people to do. And and there is an audience involved. And I want the audience to be happy throughout the whole day. I don't want them to like be happy for Matt and hating everybody else. That's not really what I'm looking for. But other than that, no, I kind of want to win all the time. And even if there isn't competition, I'm In my mind, there is always a competition. And there is always a competition. I tell my students that all the time. I say, there's gonna be a time in your life when you want something and someone else wants it. And it's gonna be you or the other person. And what it's gonna come down to is, did you read tonight? Are you gonna go home and read? Because your competition is gonna go home and read and they're gonna expand their knowledge and and become better students. So you're either gonna compete with them tonight even though you can't see them yet, or you're gonna take the night off and let them get ahead of you. So I just always think we're competing whether whether or not there are judges there or not.
1: Yeah. I love the origins of the word compete, which is competere. And in Latin, that means to strive with. And we tend to think like competition is just pummeling the other person, but it's actually like we the Yankees need the Red Sox, right? It's not as fun if the Yankees are just, maybe it is for you, but um, like I went to Syracuse where I was there from 2002 to 2006, and we're waiting to go into a the carrier dome for a basketball game. And I'm just hearing 1918 and, and Yankees suck. And like, there's this, <laughs> there's this rivalry. And I'm like, guys, we're about to play Pittsburgh in, in this dome. Um, so like, I think we need competition to bring out our best. It often causes us to do great things. And just this morning, I was like having a conversation with a client and we were talking about our kids and he was saying, I want my kids to be undeniably great at something. I want them to really be Mm. undeniable in their ability to go make something happen. And I said, I said, well, I said it's interesting because I just focus on them being good people and like character. And so where we came to is like, how can you help cultivate that cultivate their genius and their greatness and, have them do it while being a good person. So they don't turn into Bernie Madoff, right? And they don't turn into someone who's negative for our society and for our world. And so in the classroom, how do you bring in competition, but not at the expense of character?
0: My competition in the classroom, and there's a lot of it, almost always is centered around around effort and kindness. So it's not around who can complete the best essay or who can do the most math problems. It's always... How hard did you try? How did you treat the people around you? Did I notice those things? Are you doing them often enough that I'm going to notice them? That's the competition that kids are most invested in in my classroom. So, you know, the kids are separated in teams and they compete against each other. But the points I give to them are essentially, did you follow directions, which everyone can do? Were you kind to other people? Did you work hard? Uh, Did you stay organized? Because that's another thing people can do. And then they also compete against me constantly, too. So, you know, the system I have is it's three teams that compete against each other throughout the week on those those levels and there's a prize. But then at the end of the week, I combine all of the points from the three teams. And if it meets a certain goal, then they've defeated me. And so oftentimes they stop competing with each other and they start supporting themselves in the effort to defeat me. Because I set up this awful system where either I get the prize or they get the prize. So if it's popsicles, every kid gets a popsicle if they defeat me. But if I win, I eat a box of popsicles in front of them over the course of a day. They have to watch me eat one popsicle for each one of them. You know, or if it's extra recess, they either get to go play outside for an extra 15 minutes, or I go outside with the instrumental music teacher and play basketball with him while they sit on the curb and watch us play and can do nothing else. So I create a system where they really, there's a bad guy, the bad guy is me. He's kind of funny, but we do want to crush him. And so even though they're sort of competing with each other for some incidental prize, some team prize, really, there's an ultimate goal that the whole class is pulling for. And that really changes the dynamic quite a bit.
1: As you paint the picture of eating popsicles, I think about my dad who just last night told the story for the hundred thousandth time in my life about how he went to school at Wash U in St. Louis. And every hour of his 11 hour trip, he would eat a McDonald's cheeseburger. (laughs) And, and he tells the story and my son now is like, papa we've heard the story yeah. and you know i'm very fortunate my dad is a loving amazing human if you're listening to this dad i love you um and he's 74 and i i am hoping that i'm going to have another 20 plus years of awful storytelling in the cards but i find especially with older people they live in this world of just old stories and just recycled stories over and over and over again when i'm with his buddies like i just played golf with the three of them and it was three people over the age of 70 and it's just one story to the next and um i i don't find those stories to be all that interesting and enlightening it would be more interesting to learn about like the wisdom of gus who you play golf with like, but these aren't those types of stories. These are like what they shot in their last round of golf or Mm -hmm. what they had for dinner last night or how the weather's terrible. It's like uh, the stories are, are sometimes the 11 cheeseburger story is actually a pretty good story, but after you hear it a hundred times, it becomes less than coach up my dad. If he's listening to this on like how he can be a great storyteller for the next 20 years.
0: Well, one of the things I did with Gus was, I said to Gus on the second hole, I said, I'm an elementary school teacher. I teach 21 kids this year. If you have any wisdom you want to offer them, I'd love to hear what you have to say. And that was a door that opened for him. And suddenly he had everything in the world to say to me. So a lot of times it's the opportunity to actually speak. The, in, the invitation that I'm not interested in the banality of your life. I actually want some depth. And that's why it caused Gus to give me all of this incredible wisdom. The other thing that happens, I think is, If you're 70, let's say, unless you're curious about your life and you're looking at your past and asking why am I am who I am, you've probably lost touch with some of those stories that were really valuable and and you can mine for them, you can go looking for them. The other thing that I think that happens to people is the older they get, so often their life becomes smaller and therefore they have fewer stories to tell. And so that's why it's so important to say yes to every opportunity and to constantly look to expand rather than contract. You know, When you retire, you should suddenly be incredibly busy with things you've never done before. That's my goal. And whenever someone invites me to do something new, I always say yes, even if it sounds terrible, because it's an opportunity to expand my life. And if I don't like it, I'll just, I'll, I'll close that door and move on to something else. But we can't allow our lives to contract, which I think happens when people get older and that forces them to tell the stories that they have sort of settled in on because they're not generating new and interesting moments in their lives. But also just the idea that the further you get away from your 20s or your teens or your, even your 30s, the less in touch you are with those moments, unless you have that curiosity about why I am who I am and what was I doing in 1987? You know, if you can't remember 1987, spend some time time trying to figure out what was going on in 1987 in your life and you're bound to find some stories. So I have a lot of exercises I use to help people sort of like recover the past, uh, but there are stories there. They they're either lost that need to be recovered, or life is just getting a little too small, and you need to be finding ways to, to push it out a little bit. Even if for your father, go play a different golf course. I'm sure he's playing the same three courses every day. Go to the next town and, and see what's going on over there. You might meet a, a, a you might meet a friendly starter. I've never met one in my life, but maybe there's a friendly starter three co- three towns away, and you can tell us a story about a guy who was actually happy that you showed up at the golf course, uh, you know, on a particular day.
1: You know, it's interesting the starter at our club was actually very friendly and he just passed away and right. I was like man bud that guy that guy was so friendly and when you have starters host hostess um people that are greeters that are friendly it sets the tone for so many different things but imagine in a school the secretary right like when that person is friendly and in a good mood or the janitor that welcomes you with a smile or the bus driver like and they can they can be powerful um
0: yeah. Dini Haydash was the best secretary for welcoming parents and knowing everyone's name, understanding what they needed and listening to them before shuffling them off to wherever they needed to go. Yeah. makes it, it makes a world of difference.
1: Since we're on the golf course, I want to go there for a minute, which is there's no place I've ever been that has more inappropriate jokes than on a golf course. And <laughs> I love playing golf with my buddies and I love uh, being out there for, you know, hours and, and being in nature and, Uh, camaraderie and the cell phone is a little less active when I'm on the golf course. Yeah. And there's like a lot of small talk, like it's a lot Mm -hmm. of, like once again, there will be people that just have their golf jokes, their inappropriate golf jokes. And you're about, you know, you're about to tee off and they like stop everything. And they tell this inappropriate golf joke. And I always, am like, dude, do we really have to hear this inappropriate golf joke? Like it it doesn't really fill me up. It doesn't really excite me. It doesn't really interest me. Uh, And maybe it's because I like to be a little deeper than, than an inappropriate golf joke. Um, And by the way, I'm fine having fun on a dance floor and partying. and, And there's times when I'm not deep at all. Um, but I'm curious, like if, if you think about a great round of golf for you, besides scoring low and hitting the ball well, what does it involve? What does it sound like? What does it look like?
0: Well, I'm not scoring low. So I'm I'm at like a 12 handicap right now. So I'm not great. Uh for me, it's time spent with people and it's this, it's the it's the seeking excellence. You know, if I play poorly, but I'm seeking excellence and I'm thinking about my game while I'm having a good time with my friends. You know, if I hit a bad shot and I'm able little say, say to myself, all right, why'd you hit that bad shot? You know, today I hit a bad shot and I said, you know what? I'm on a hill and I did not choke up on the seven iron because you're an idiot and you know to choke up on the seven iron. You didn't. And that's why you chunked it. And now you, that's why the ball went 30 yards and now you have to hit it again. That's me seeking excellence. I'm like, all right, the next time I'm in this position, let's try to remember that. I love that. I love that constantly trying to improve and with golf it's so hard because you can play a great round and a bad round and the score can differ by like two strokes you're like that was a terrible round how did i shoot a 42 right that was a great round i shot a 41 like they they're so it's so interesting the way the game is played but each shot is a singular event in itself and i treat them as singular events and then when the event's over i'm with my friends again so story
1: is storytelling matt on the golf course with his buddies or is that person turned off when you're on the golf course
0: no no storytelling happens on the golf course a lot I mean I was really really bad for a long time and the only reason everyone asked me to play is because I'm entertaining while we're playing you know Uh, and I'm also shameless so you know I had a guy tell me once I don't know how you played for the first five years you were so bad I don't know why you weren't embarrassed by how poorly you played and I said to him I don't know why you're why you're not embarrassed by your low self-esteem I said, I feel so good about myself. I don't care what people think about my golf shot. I, I'm appalled that you would be worried about other human beings thinking about you as it relates to your golf shot. I think you're the one who has the problem, man. So, you know, for me, it's just a good time on a golf course with each singular event, the desire to seek excellence. And, and you know, if you play golf, you can have, you know, you can hit the ball poorly 20 times. And on the 21st shot, when you hit that perfect, true, I didn't even feel the ball as I swung through it. That's enough to bring you back to go, okay, I can, I can do something. It doesn't happen often, but let's try to make it happen more often. You know? I,
1: had a cl- I had a client once who ended up playing in the senior U S open am, and he used to say golf is an endless stream of opportunities. Yeah. I thought that was just beautifully said yeah. uh, since we're on sports. I, I, teased this before but it was something that i didn't know the answer to and i'm curious about is we can hear your massachusetts accent come out every once in a while you mentioned being a big new england patriot fan in the book you talk about them winning the super bowl over the philadelphia eagles and it's a wonderful story um and you wear a yankees hat you're also a yankee fan uh so talk walk us through your allegiances (laughs) Uh, and how you end up being, uh, you know, ties to Boston and then ties to New York and and how that works for you.
0: Well, I grew up 30 minutes south of Boston. I had one of the thickest Boston accents you ever heard when I moved here to Connecticut 30 years ago, I guess now. And it still comes out, you're right. Uh, I love, I'm a Celtics and Bruins diehard fan too. My stepfather, who was not a wonderful person, was a Red Sox fan. And so as a kid, I wanted to spite him in every way possible. And so I could get channel 11, WPIX on the UHF antenna, for those of you who don't remember what that was like or never knew, it's tricky. But I was able to get that channel on my black and white television. And so I would put it on and walk out of the room just to annoy my stepfather. And Don Mattingly and Willie Randolph and Dave Winfield and Dave Rigetti were all playing for the Yankees at the time. And just having that game on and watching those guys first despite my stepfather. And then I sort of fell in love with them. I became a Yankees fan while living in Boston, which is a tough thing to do. You know, you learn how to punch people in the nose instead of the mouth. And, you know, it makes you, it makes you tough, but, uh, but I fell in love with the Yankees. So I love all the Boston teams, except for the Red Sox. I am a tried and true Yankees fan since I was about 10 years old, I guess, when they were bad. You know, I, I didn't fall in love with them in 96. You know, I fell in love with them in 86. So, uh, so, you know, I've loved them for a long time.
1: It's interesting because we started this conversation with this idea of, do you have the story or does the story have you? Yeah. And we're going to end with like, do you have the Yankees or do the Yankees have you? <laughs> um, and so your loyalty has worked out and it's it's worked out well uh, over the last probably 20, 30 years. It has. Um, I'm
0: careful on the hat because like I'm a Patriot season ticket holder. So before I leave for the game every Sunday, I go, which hat do I have on? Cause I'm not going to, I'm not going to Gillette in a, in a Yankees hat. I'm not dumb. So I'm always a little care or I'm from performing in New York versus, versus Boston. I'm always, care. I have an extra hat of each in my car just in case I've screwed it up when I left. So
1: wait, so you'll put on the Patriots hat. If you're in Boston, you're not putting on the Red Sox. hat.
0: Correct. Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't wear Red Sox hats, but uh, <laughs> so I'll put on something else. I have a Celtics hat. I'll wear a Bruins hat. Yeah. Those things. Yeah.
1: Well, Matt, this has been an absolute blast. There's so much density in your book um, and uh, highly recommend. I was going to give it to my dad last night, but I was like, you know what? Let me hold on to it uh, just in case there's anything else I want to prepare for today, but I'm going to gift it to him and we'll see if he he reads it. Uh, So dad, you got a book coming your way. And if those of you that are not my dad, I highly recommend you spend the money to to purchase it. Uh, If people want to find uh, your books, your TED Talks. Uh, I know you've done some podcasting, your blog. Uh, where's the best place for them to do that? And how can they continue to follow your journey as well?
0: Sure. They can go to MatthewDix.com. Uh, you can find all my books there. I mean, you can get books wherever you buy books. Uh, you can follow me. I write a blog every day for the last 19 years without missing a day. I have a thought every day, miraculously, to to speak about, um, you can follow me on social media. I also have a company that's specifically targeting storytelling. If you go to storyworthymd.com, I have courses there. I have lots of free material, lots of um, lots of ways to learn to become a better storyteller, uh, which I think everyone should. Even if you're a mute and you live in a cave and you don't ever see anyone, I, I believe that storytelling is best for ourselves first before we share it with other people. So finding and telling better stories is going to be a good thing for you.
1: Well, I mentioned earlier, like parenting probably consumes a lot of my framework and and lens these days. And I was thinking about yesterday how I can leverage story with my kids and, um, you know, how we can all continue to leverage story at the dinner table. And uh, it is, it's a tool and a skill that you talk about in the book that we can get better at. We just need to focus on it and direct our attention to it and and work on it. So yeah, it's a good uh, point.
0: It's a skill. It can be learned for sure.
1: Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, LinkedIn also at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskillsco slash podcast. Quick shout out to fellow teacher, Joe Ferraro for connecting the two of us. He has a wonderful podcast called 1% Better, which I listened to Matt, Matt's podcast episode with Joe to prepare for today. Uh, so I recommend if you want more information uh, from Matt, you can also check out Joe's podcast. He just does a wonderful job. Um, and really grateful to get to know you. I feel like you're so Someone I could continue to talk to for a long time. So hopefully our paths cross at some point when either you're in D.C. or I'm up in Connecticut. But thank you so much for your time and for coming on the podcast.
0: Thanks. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. I start every school year uh, on the first day. I tell the kids the story of the time I was at a classmate's pool party when I was 12 and I had a new bathing suit that was too big and I hadn't tied the drawstring and I went off the diving board and I left my bathing suit behind. And I ended up in a swimming pool naked while my friends were staring at me and how horrible that was. And I tell kids that on the first day of school because I want them to understand that I know what it's like to be embarrassed and ashamed because that will happen to you because you're 10 and 11, you're beginning puberty and that's for sure gonna be a feeling you have.